The experiment to prove the existence of God has established a few criteria needed in force to make the experiment work. The experiment cannot prove the opposite of what it seeks to prove if it is to prove God exists. The test group cannot prove God does not exist or support a situation which causes us to doubt his existence as we seek to prove the existence of God. The experiment cannot be concerned with the implications of its findings. It has one concern and one focus. The experiment to prove the existence of God is concerned with proving that God exists in an empirically demonstrable way. What else it proves or implies is not part of the experiment's mandate. The experiment cannot confirm or substantiate that conditions that would make it impossible for God to exist, do exist. The experiment cannot demonstrate that the conditions which make it impossible to prove his existence scientifically are conditions that do exist. The sole objective of the test group is to prove beyond reasonable doubt that God exists. The only concern the test group has beyond proving God exists is to set itself up in such a way that it would be differentiated from the control group. It was established that the proof of God would mean that belief in God would produce something measurable. The experiment would produce testable and verifiable results. This quantification conditionality necessitated a division between the test and control groups, and it was determined that the line between them had to be decisive. The clearer and more distinct the line, the more strongly the groups would be divided and the better able we would be to notice and measure the difference. Obviously, the line could not just be social. Even if there is a clear line of distinction between rich and poor, who is on one side of the line and who is on the other, is ultimately subjective. The same goes for the political right and left. To conduct an experiment, we need a line that is objective in where it is placed and who goes one which side of it. The source of this line could and will be social, and part of the humanities. It will be formed in the same way the line between two nations is formed. Borders are cultural but the division leads to a well-defined line based on geography and degrees of latitude and longitude. Even if we cannot see them, the lines around property lots are objective. This is the kind of objective precision the experiment must aim for. What is the use of property we do not own or control the disposition of? Now this question opens the door to one of the most common themes in modern social relations. It also consists of a direct attack on one of mankind's most cherished institutions, our concept of private property. NIMBYism is the label used for those who object to changes in their immediate vicinity. The implication of being a NIMBY is that the person does not object to the proposal in principle, whatever it is, NIMBYs suggest the activity needs to be located elsewhere, meaning not in the NIMBYs jurisdiction. Not in my backyard is a label designed to suggest the opponent of the proposed change is a hypocrite a bigot and much else that is not very Christian or neighborly. The alternative to being a NIMBY is to be liberal and have, in theory, no principles or boundaries. But the alternative is never expressed in that way. 
If nimbyism was put in the context of a business, the plaintiff's concerns would be sympathized with. A business selling children's toys would not want a strip club next door nor would a bar be welcomed next to a fine restaurant. This is why we have zoning regulations. Indeed, what are zoning regulations but a form of nimbyism? Yet, to be dismissive of a culture is to be a nimby. To denigrate a way of life is to be a nimby. Indeed, to have standards is to be a nimby. To suggest two choices that people can make are not compatible, brands one as a nimby or worse. Despite this universal opprobrium heaped upon people who want to live with people who share his or her values and habits, the law reflects the nimby mindset. The nation does not think people who want to drive at unsafe speeds is someone they want on their roads. Politicians frequently remind us of our duties, but if we have any duty, it is to the truth. Duties based on the needs of others is oppression. Criminals consider they have a duty where none exists. They think they have a duty to cover up each other's crimes or to hinder an investigation. There must be a line somewhere if science is to exist. If two different possibilities can be compared there must be a standard of comparison. If everything is relative and there are no absolutes, there are no genuine purposes or goals and no right and wrong. What is the point of comparing options if there is no good, better, best? Even if you assert there is a rule, to live by the rule cannot be validated or justified. The only thing available to us, to decide between different opinions, is violence. If there is no intrinsic good and evil there is only one method left to decide what is right from what is wrong, that is violence. In a universe with no standards, might makes right and the end justifies the means. The person who cannot protect his interests, in the liberal universe, by means of physical violence or does not have someone who will serve as their protector, has no rights. It stands to reason, if one lives in a reality governed by physical causation, rights must be based on the physical ability to enforce rights. If you are able to prove you have rights by any other means than a threat of violence against those who oppose the exercise of your rights, you do not live in a physical reality. No one has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in physical reality. The law of cause and effect does not give people rights. The laws of causality do not promise anything other than that for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Those whom we have designated as the control group live by the law because they believe physical reality has patterns and order governed by law. The best way to organize society is by replicating the laws of nature. Society does not have nature to make its laws, so it creates a substitute for nature called government. Human laws are akin to natural laws and are meant to replicate them in a social setting. The rules of the road are akin to the laws of nature. The rules of the road regulate traffic in the way the laws of nature regulate how electrons spin and combine. But of course, the laws of man are volatile and easily broken. It takes military force to maintain them. 
This is because laws are not founded on logic or reason but opinion. Anything based on physical power requires the use of physical power to maintain it. The conventional understanding of ownership is based on the exercise of raw power. The owner of a property sees and claims part of the world because he has the power to do this. Or the person acquires a right to see and claim physical property from a powerful agent such as the state or monarch. This means ownership of property is never total. A physical claim on a piece of property is only as good as the power available to protect it. The state claims the national region as its own, but if a stronger neighbor invades the land the right to own this land is lost with the loss of the war. With this loss goes all rights to land based on the national claim to that territory. But in this day and age the loss of traditional lands is not an issue front and center with most civilized people. We have learned to live with the absurdity of our rights. We have collectively decided to live and let live, so long as the integrity of our borders is concerned. Nations are less dependent on the ability to kill those who disagree with our claim to the national lands. All the same, ought we be surprised when violence is used to obtain rights others do not wish us to have? Violence is not far away when we are forced to protect rights because violence is the final adjudicator of who has which rights. Unfortunately, the squabble over rights is unresolvable. It always comes down to who has the most power and is the most adept at inflicting harm on their opponent. The answer changes from year to year and from opponent to opponent. No one has a right to the physical world. That a nation with its guns and penchant for killing those who disagree with it can enforce its claims on others proves only its ability to kill the opposition. The nation or individual cannot prove anyone has a defensible right to anything they did not create. Only the law and its enforcement with military forces backs up conventional ownership claims. If your ownership claims rest on the power of the state to defend its contiguous border, the onus is on you to demonstrate the state's claim is morally defensible. But surely, if we or the state had a right to what we have, would the claim need to be defended solely by force of arms? We have a right to what we create but no right to what was created by another. This principle poses a problem for conventional economics. In conventional economics an asset and its equity are merged into the same product or service. OG owns the work he did that went into creating an arrowhead but OG does not own the flint because OG did not create the flint. But for OG and for many of his ancestors up until recent times, the distinction was not significant enough to create problems. Personal ownership encompasses this span of history in which the distinction between assets and equity was of small matter. Even into the origins of capitalism, the small businessman was not much different than the laborer. The entrepreneur worked from home using many of the same tools the average homeowner had access to. To produce something for the family and to have a surplus to sell does not make one an enemy of God. But when we get into the modern era in which money is considered to be a machine for making more wealth, 
the larger issues are brought more clearly into focus. Why ought a person to own a waterfall or forest or 5,000 acres of farmland? Why ought the state have the right to license a mine to one person? Only the ability to field a large contingent of armed men gives the state the right to act as it does. We rightfully say, as does the Bible, that a man has a right to be paid for his work. But work is labor that produces something of value. Workers are paid from the value his work creates. But why does a person who borrows a sum from the bank have a right to live off of the profits of his investment, without ever working or creating anything of value? Capitalists argue that the investor took the risk and so to him belong the rewards. This makes perfect sense if one is a capitalist living in a capitalist system. It does not necessarily make sense if one is rational. The irony of the justification is that it begins by assuming the state has captured a territory. As the possessor of captured the land the state gives itself the right to assign title to sections of this land, to private interests. This situation always produces a high level of risk. Obtaining title to something one does not own, in the real sense of the word, means one can reap the benefits even if they are not owned either. It is one's willingness to accept the risk that comes with your investment that gives the investor the right to make a profit. Had the state not taken it upon themselves to claim the land, it could not have created the risk that justified the private investor claiming a right to any profits they could extract. In the old days a private investor would buy the right to collect taxes for the state and having purchased this right thought he was justified in collecting as much as he could from his clients. Which opens the door to the problem of dividing up the land, if it can be divided at all. Is globalism right in its assertion there ought to be no national boundaries? Do we want the end to national boundaries? Globalism is for those with no walls around private estates or lockable doors on homes. The national border is simply a first line of defense against potential enemies. If we cannot stop our enemies from entering our country, why are we claiming the right to stop them before they enter our gated community or home? But let us go back to O.G. and his arrowhead. We say O.G. had a right to be paid for the work done on the flint. If this is not a valid statement, no one has a right to anything, and we live in a state of nature. Once we propose that a worker is worthy of his wages, who pays him? If we are talking about a small business the artisan can take his wares to market and sell them for a profit, ensuring he makes a living. But the bigger the business gets the clearer become the issues. Let's imagine stumbling upon a priceless treasure. Does finders keepers apply? What of a rich vein of gold? What if someone is left a fortune by his father? The son makes a living lending money or perhaps buying apartments and renting out rooms? Is there anything that he ought not to be doing as the owner of capital? It is difficult to respond to the question of what the return on investments ought to be from the perspective of capitalism. To own capital is to have the right to exploit capital. That is what capitalism is all about. 
but having no other choice but to make as much money as possible within the mechanisms of the free market does not make what is permitted right. To go back to the claim that we own only what we create, we understand we own the value added to assets without owning the asset. We own the value added to assets, so we all have a right to be paid for what we do. But we asked who was responsible for paying us. If the free market did not have this responsibility nor the state, who does? How does the labor get paid? Conventional economics tells us that the only way to get paid is to work for private enterprise or the state. But we can also work for God. If this expression upsets you, we can work for charity. We can promote not-for-profit private ownership or what might be considered trusteeship. We do not just have a right to be paid for what we do, we have a right to work. This is not a generalized right, it is a right provided by the charitable institution. We add value, but we add value to things held in trust by the charitable institution. Some may claim they work for God, but we cannot do anything for God, so it is perverse to say we are being paid by God for the work we do. God does not need our help, but the people of God need our help, our neighbors need our help. The help we give is provided through a not-for-profit charitable institution. We might consider ourselves a hermit. We might decide to buy a place of our own and fix it up for our own use. But no one can live well on their own and no one has the ability to produce all things needed to have a civilized life. We have to specialize. Specialization will not go far without a way to quantify the value each person contributes. At this point secularists are at a disadvantage. Secularists have no recourse but to maintain the conventional forms of ownership. To fulfill the conditions of the experiment, the test group must divide from the control group. The best way is through the test group divesting itself of what it does not have a right to. Divestment requires the formation of a cell. Cells are a small group of between 3 to 15 persons who gather to form a charitable institution. A precondition for the experiment is for conventional ownership models be discontinued. The test group owns no commercial assets and as few personal assets as is convenient. All unused or underused assets and commercial assets are transferred to the charitable institution. The mission of the charitable institution is to prove the existence of God through works of charity. The charity to fulfill its mission accepts donations and provides charitable receipts or credits. Credits are used in place of fiat currency, both as a unit of account and a medium of exchange. A person who donates $500 of assets is credited with 500 preferred shares issued by the charitable institution. As a unit of account, the preferred share issue is recorded as prefers, designated by the symbol. The object of the charity is to increase equity. This increases the value of the property dedicated to the charitable purpose. Members of the test group seek to do what best increases the value of the charity. Any outside interference which threatens to reduce or limit the value of the charitable institution is opposed.
which will doubtless open us up to the charge of nimbyism. The test group has a right to maintain and defend the value of the charity to enable it to pursue its charitable purpose. The purpose of the charity is to demonstrate charitable institutions are more profitable than the conventional systems. The charity does good works which is defined as adding value the charitable institution's assets. Policies and programs that reduce the work of the charity infringes upon the mandate of the charity. Any program or policy that the secular world attempts to impose on the charitable institution is declined as interfering with the institution's need to remain distinct and different from the control group. No policy or program that represents anything negative or potentially negative as regards the objects of the charity will be permitted in the jurisdiction and on the property administrated by the charitable test group. In other words, NIMBYism will be exercised and defended as the standard policy of the charity.